Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our look through the book of Psalms, today looking at Psalm 80 and the shining face of God. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, we thank you that your word is true. It not only uh, speaks to us about the condition of our world, it not only speaks to Uh, the reality of life in a fallen world. But Lord, you show us the purpose of life, and that life is to be centered on you. It's to be centered on the personal work of Christ. And so Lord, as we look at this very uh, challenging and yet very comforting psalm, I, I pray today, Lord, that we would see even more of what it means, Lord, to walk by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. So Lord, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you have told us the path of life and you have shown it to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so Lord, we we pray as we now open your word that you would take it and that it would land on the good soil bed of our hearts, that we would be encouraged in even the grace of God that has saved us and yet is also helping us to grow to be more like you. So Lord, we we thank you uh, for a wonderful psalm that you've given to us in this Psalm 80 and pray, Lord, now that you would use it to minister to our hearts, whatever the condition uh, that we come today, that that you would use it. And we thank you for Isaiah 55, 11 that tells us very clearly that the word of God will will not return void, that it will do and it will accomplish all that you aim to do, because this is your word. This is your living, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and binding word. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, uh, just take it and use it as you will and, and plant it in the good soil bed of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 80. Psalm 80 says this, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we might be, we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought out a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It it sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruits? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. 
and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. May God bless the preaching of his word and the study of his word. Benjamin Morgan Palmer tells of a friend who attended a series of evangelistic meetings. After several days, the man complained to Palmer that preachers are the most contradictory men in the world. And he explained why yesterday you said in your sermon that sinners were perfectly helpless in themselves, utterly unable to repent or to believe, and then turned square around and said that they would be damned if they did not. Well, Palmer's reply showed the master surgeon of souls that he was, and he answered, saying, Well, he answered, there is no use in our quarreling over this matter. Either you can or you cannot. If you can, all I have to say is that I hope you will just go ahead and do it. This probe touched directly on the wound as a friend replied, I have been trying my best for three whole days and cannot. Now, this helpless condition, it reflects the writing in what we just read from Psalm 80. Israel here is suffering under God's wrath for its idolatry and sin, so that salvation can happen only as the people repent and turn to the Lord once again. The psalmist thus prays for Israel's return because he knows that only God can give the grace to grant such repentance. Three times this psalm is going to repeat the refrain of verse 3, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And in seeking an answer to this issue, Psalm 80 presents some of the richest imagery of God found throughout all of the scripture. This psalm is going to identify God as a source of salvation's blessing, as a judge who causes wrath in response to sin, and whose covenant grace is the hope of those who seek restoration in his care. Eric Lane describes Psalm 80 as an appeal to God based on his pledged love to his people. This psalm is an intense theological prayer that seeks to know God and to remember his ways so as to persevere in the hope of salvation of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone as revealed in the word of God alone. And to do this, what what the psalmist is going to do is he's going to recall God's relationship. In fact, we see this in verse 1 of our psalm today. It calls on God by means of the imagery of the Lord as shepherd of his flock. When the psalmist says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Now, this way of relating to God, it first appears in Genesis 48, 15, where Jacob praised the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The Israelites were herdsmen, and so the thought of God as a shepherd to his weak and needy people was both familiar to them and significant to them. In fact, David said this in Psalm 23, verses 1 through 2, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And so we can say this, that to pray to God as our shepherd is to stress the intimate nature of our relationship, noting as well the difficulty of saving what James Boyce describes as a helpless, wayward, or even stupid animals, he says. 
God's shepherding love came to full display when Jesus applied this imagery to himself in John 10, 11, which says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, it is because God has taken this kind of interest in those who call on his name that we can pray with so much hope. If you can number yourself a member of Christ's flock through saving faith in him, you can pray to a Savior and Lord and King who has committed his divine will for your salvation. Now in verse 1, it adds a second important image of God, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. This statement refers to the Ark of the Covenant crowned with two golden images of, of mighty angels. The ark was the footstool of God on earth in the place where the Lord met with his servants. When Moses came before the ark to meet with God, he saw the overwhelming radiance of the majesty of God. In fact, in verse 1, the psalmist calls on God to shine forth, praying to God as a transcendent deity who is able to save. You see, when we remember that the cherubim rested atop the mercy seat, we remember God's willingness to forgive. The mercy seat, if we remember, is where the high priest sprinkled the atoning blood of the sacrificed goat on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16.15. And so when God told Moses in Exodus 25.22, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, what he was promising was saving grace through atoning blood, blood that would ultimately point forward to and be fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And with these vivid imageries, Psalm 80 shows that the biblical knowledge and theology are powerful to give consolation to believers who are, who are suffering. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're, maybe you're struggling with grief. You've lost somebody in the last few years, and so many people have. Maybe even right now you're losing somebody due to a debilitating disease like dementia or something else like it, or, or cancer, and the list goes on and on. And what you need to know is the word of God has something to say to this, that your God is near to you, that he isn't far from you. He is not distant from you in this situation. And not only is he near to you, he's unchanging. This, these ideas of God's unchanging nature and his nearness they help us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our difficulties, even in the midst of seasons where we have much. They help us. They help us to stand fast. In fact, I'm reminded even of, of the, the book of James in James 1, 2 through 3. Paul said, or James says, excuse me, in James 1, 2 through 3, to consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kind. The book of 1 Peter was written to people who were facing trials and suffering. They were sojourners. They were people facing intense suffering. The book of Hebrews was written by a shepherd pastor to people who were facing real suffering, real issues like you and I are today. And what, what the writers there did in, in James and 1 Peter and, and even in Hebrews is they wrote to address the real hurts and the pain. They, they took biblical knowledge, biblical theology, and they brought it to bear on the lives of people who were suffering. And to show people that God is near and that God is unchanging. 
John Calvin writes, The mercy seat was a pledge of the presence of God, where he had promised to be near his people to hear their prayers. See, Christians see the ark and the mercy seat today as symbols pointing forward to their true fulfillment in the cross of Christ, and thus as tokens of God's salvation for those who pray to him in trusting, saving faith in the Lord Jesus. So to pray in Jesus' name is for believers to approach God with mighty confidence in the salvation that he alone provides through his saving grace. Now, scholars are generally agreed that Psalm 80 calls on God in light of invasions that were ravaging the northern kingdom of Israel, probably in the years before the fall of Samaria in 722 BC. Ephraim and Manasseh in verse 2 of our psalm were the sons of Joseph who produced the two leading tribes of the northern kingdom. And Benjamin is added as a true brother of Joseph and as a tribe that marched with the other two during the Exodus sojourn. Most likely, Asaph has in mind the devastations suffered by the house of Joseph during the invasions by mighty Assyria. This was the view of the editors of the 3rd century BC Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, who added the inscription, a psalm concerning the Assyrian. Now, if Psalm 80 does occur, uh, following and focus on the suffering of the northern kingdom, and if it was indeed written by a Jew of the southern kingdom, as the name Asaph suggests, then we have here another outstanding prayer of solidarity between one half of Israel for the sake of the other. A modern example would involve a Presbyterian praying for the trials of Methodist churches, or a Baptist appealing to God on behalf of Charismatics. And and though the northern tribes were long estranged, Asaph wanted to pray for his neighbors as well as for himself. And so he says in verse 2 of our psalm today, Stir up your might and come to save us, he cries. And then in what becomes the refrain of this psalm in verse 3, he says, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. The ironic blessing called for God's favor and for protection, saying in Numbers 6.25, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And so the psalmist echoes this benediction, even as he prays for God to turn his face towards his people and to give them peace. You see, if they were restored to a true and a living faith, then God's favor would secure their salvation. And if the psalmists and even the southern colleagues were so concerned about the fate of the northern kingdom, then they should have exhorted their neighbor to return in faith to the Lord for salvation. We know that the godly king Jehoshaphat attempted just this in time of the wicked Ahab in 2 Chronicles 18. And yet Asaph realized that in addition to calling on sinners to repent and believe in Christ, we should undertake the even more important work of prayer. David Dixon writes this, Conversion of people from their sin unto God and leading them back from misery drawn on by sin is the work of God which no man can work of himself in himself or in others till God begin and enable to return and lead them on in their returning. This is why Jonah 2.9 says that salvation is of the Lord and why the psalmist pleads in verse 3 of Psalm 80, Restore unto us, O God. Now next, the psalmist is going to answer the question and talk with us about how long, O Lord. 
Now, the opening appeal in this psalm is followed by a more detailed analysis and a plea. And again, the psalmist realizes that the root of the problem lay in Israel's sinful, broken fellowship with God. And, and the result is, is that God has not been willing to answer Israel's prayers. In verse 4, O Lord, it says, in verse 4, it says of this psalm, it says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Now, now, obviously, the psalmist has not given up on prayer. He's appealing to God. He's pleading with God. But he laments that God responded to previous pr- prayers with apparent anger. And there are several reasons why God may choose not to answer our prayers in the expected manner. For instance, he may want to strengthen our faith in the crucible of trials. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes uh, through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And another reason is that God often has a better way of answering our prayers, an answer that we need to wait in faith for. And, and waiting is hard, isn't it? It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to wait on God. It's difficult to wait on that, that one thing that you want most of all. We've all been there. We've all done it, right? We've, we've all waited on the Lord. And it, it hurts. It can, it can even be a, a, a real challenge for our faith. And, and many people, they just, they just they really struggle with this. And you know what? I know what that's like. There, there's been so many times when I got out of seminary. One example I'll, I'll give you was uh, I became downright despondent uh, in my walk with the Lord for a number of years. Uh, and, and in about 2017, I realized this when I got my first book contract. And I, and I was sitting there. I was overjoyed. I was thankful. My wife was excited for me. We were incredibly happy. Um, but then the next day when I was sitting in my office, I just started crying and I, and I had to really think about why am I, why am I so relieved? Well, the, the, the matter became very clear as, as I started thinking and talking about this with my wife and a few close friends, what I had done is I had made book contracts and, and these types of things that were good, but I, but I had made these things ultimate things. And, and, and waiting on the Lord, what I, what the Lord was doing is he wasn't, he wasn't not being good to me. He was being good to me. He was growing me in that period of time. And, and what I had to realize is I had made the pursuit of even something good, like getting a book contract. I had made it an ultimate thing. I had made it an idol in my life. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting there waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And there's, there's still plenty of things that in, in my life that I'm waiting on. And maybe that's true for you today as well. And you can relate. But in waiting, God isn't saying, look, I'm not, I'm not going to not give you that. I mean, I don't know if he will or not. There are certain things in my life that I don't know if God will ever give me. And that's okay because he's still a good God. In fact, we can say that in waiting on the Lord, what God is doing is he's, he's showing where our real trust is. Is it, is it in the book contract? Is it, in, is it more in the, in, the gift, in, the, in, the, in the gift that the giver, God himself, is going to give? I mean, it's a question. 
And what that question exposes is it exposes where your trust is, where your allegiance is, where your worship is directed. Is it directed at that that thing that you want that you're not having? Because God says right now, I, I want you to wait on me. I want you to wait on me. I want you to grow in my grace. I want you to grow in trust of me. And so that's what waiting is for. It's not, God isn't saying, I don't want to not give you that thing, but I have something better for you. I have, you have me. Am, am I enough? God, in, in waiting, God is saying, am I enough for you? Am I sufficient for you? And our answer should be yes. It should be yes. The Lord is sufficient. And so even in, even in waiting on the Lord, what, what God is doing for us is he's giving us an opportunity to, to show our commitments, our trust in his revealed will. And we, we don't know. We don't know what, what the future has for us. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know the one who does. And, wh- and what this does very practically for those of us who struggle with anxiety and fear and doubts, and it, it, it rather reorients our perspective from focusing on our situations and our circumstances and, and even our, the things of our life. It focuses it on the Lord. And in Hebrews 12, uh, starting in verses 1 and 2, it, it very clearly, the, the writer of Hebrews is concerned that in the midst of these people that, that he's writing to, that he's ministering to, that they fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, that text says. And that's a good word for us in the midst of waiting on the Lord. God isn't saying, I, I-, I won't never give you that. But, but what he instead is saying, I have something even better than what you want. And maybe in time, that thing that you want will, will, will become a reality. But for now, what the reality is, is you're waiting. And in your waiting, what are you doing? Are you trusting the Lord? Are you looking to the Lord for his help? Or are you resting in your own uh, merits, your own sufficiency? And, and the truth is, as I've had to learn many, many times and over and over again, is I'm trusting in myself. As silly as that is, as silly as it is, this is the work of sanctification. God is God is exposing in our waiting. This is why over and over again in the Psalms, God tells us to wait on Him because it, it expresses our confidence in His sovereign power. Remember, this is the God who upholds the, the world by the, by the word of His power. He, he is the God who gives us life and breath. He, he knows the length of our days. He knows the very heads on our, uh, all the heads on or the hairs on our head. He knows the condition of our hearts. He knows the motivation of our hearts. He knows everything about us. And so we cannot fake out this God. We cannot fake out this God. We must trust him in the midst of whatever is going on in our life whether that's challenges in our marriage, in our relationships, challenges with our finances, challenges with a child or of any kind, we must trust the Lord. Now, there's a third reason 
for unanswered prayer and that 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 God may be chastising us for flagrant sin. An example of this is given in the book of Malachi when the priests of Israel complained because God was not answering their prayers. And, and so the people were asking, why isn't the Lord listening to their petitions? Malachi 2.14 says, because the Lord was the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so the Israelite men had broken covenant with their wives, and yet they wondered why God did not fulfill his covenant with them. Peter gives a similar warning to us as to Christian men, to Christian husbands, urging them to cherish their wives so that your prayers may not be hindered in 1 Peter 3, 7. And given this example, when we wonder why our lives are not flourishing spiritually, we need to carefully consider our most basic Christian duties. Are husbands loving their wives? Are wives submitting themselves to the well-being of their husbands and children? Extending the principle even further, are employers pairing a fair wage to workers? Or are political leaders living before God in practical holiness? And something similar to what Malachi describes seems to be happening in Psalm 80. But here the record of the Old Testament, it indicates that the problem was the worship of idols. In the service of the temple, prayer was represented by the burning of incense, which arose before God with a sweet aroma. And as the psalmist sees it, the Lord has not responded with pleasure, but with billows of wrathful smoke to smother both incense and prayer. So the idea of chastisement is strengthened by verses 5 and 6 of, of this very psalm, which says, God has fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. And when God has appointed daily sorrows as our divine provision with no relief from remorse and lamentation, we may well feel that we have fallen under his displeasure. And added to this is strife with our neighbors and mockery from enemies. When he says, you make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. And these statements, they prove the reality of divine chastisement and discipline that Christians may equally experience. O. Palmer Robertson says this, Christian romantics imagine that God is like an indulgent father who would never lift his voice to speak in a way that would disturb his children. Now, now David was this kind of father. He spoiled his sons by never rebuking them. We see this in 1 Kings 1.6, which laments that he never said, Why have you done thus and so? And with the sad result was the ruin of his family and of the nation. In contrast, God does not make the mistake of indulging his children. With, with so great a need of the saving grace of God in the person and work of Christ, the psalmist now returns to his prior refrain in Psalm 80, verse 7, which says, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine, that we may be saved. Now, And here's a verse that, that suffers all the varieties that may take as their own. And the only difference from verse 3 is that instead of merely appealing to God, he adds, O God of hosts. The first instance, the Hebrew Elohim, it calls God as a creator who has power to manage any earthly foe. And now addressing him as Elohim Sabbat, Asaph, notes the legions of heavenly armies available at God's command. Robertson comments, God's people are in distress. They need him to intervene in their lives. They are reeling under the chastising of his hand. Their land has been devastated, and they are overpowered by their enemies. But they can hope in God, who has revealed his nature through his names. <clears throat> that is why we should know the character of God. 
We need to know God as the I am. Why? Because this this reveals, as Exodus 3.14 says, I am who I am. This reveals that God is eternally self-existing and eternally self-sufficient. This is our God. God is enough in and of himself. That That is an amazing, it's a, it's a jaw-dropping, uh, mic-drop moment. God is self-sufficient in and of himself. He didn't need us, and yet he made us out of the abundance of his Trinitarian love. That, that is what Genesis 1.26 very clearly tells us. Let us make man in our image and likeness. God didn't need to make us. He already was eternally self-existent and self-sufficient in and of himself. He made us out of the abundance of his own Trinitarian love, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he made us in his own image. Let that, let that truth just, I mean, that truth is just an amazing one. If you want to be humbled and see yourself in, in the right way before God, I mean, just think about that for just a minute. Just a minute. But also realize that what you need the most is you need this God. You need the power of God to uphold you. Otherwise, you won't have life and breath. You, you, need the, you need the power of God to provide for you. Otherwise, you have no shelter, no food. You have no home. You have no money. You have no ability to get to and fro because uh, you'd have no legs. Without, without him ordering your cells and, and, and helping your body to function, you would not be able to move. You wouldn't be able to talk. I mean, think about all the many ways in which the Lord upholds your body and the cells therein. And, and then think about all the ways in which the Lord upholds the world in which we live. And, and how we are so quick to forget even the most basic reality that there is not one moment, one nanosecond, if you will, of every moment of every single day in which we live maybe 75, 80 years, maybe, maybe, maybe less, in which we do not need the Lord. And, and how our lives would be so much different if we lived in light of that truth. And that's true for you. That's true for me. That's true for all of us. Well, as we continue on with, with this psalm, our next point is why we need to recount the investment of God. And Psalm 80 so far has noted God's covenant relationship with Israel as a shepherd of his people and as the king who is enthroned above the cherubim. And in verse 8, he takes a different tack. He notes now uh, God's now endangered investment with Israel. In verse 8, he takes a different uh, approach and, and he's going to employ yet another rich biblical imagery when he says, You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. Just as the imagery of God as a shepherd emphasizing the weakness of the sheep, so also a vine is a plant that can thrive only under God's careful tending, especially in a dry and a dusty climate. George Horn notes that the vine is a wild and luxuriant unless restrained by the pruning knife, but capable, he says, of producing the most valuable fruit when managed well, though if barren, the most unprofitable among trees and fit only for the flames. 
Israel is compared to a vine in Hosea 10.1 and in Ezekiel 15 and most notably in Isaiah 5. In fact, in his song of the vineyard, Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 5, 1 through 2, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchman in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes. Now, Christians especially think of Jesus' I am statement in John 15, 4 through 5 where Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And now using this same biblical imagery, the psalmist tells of God's rich investment in the planting of his people in verses 8 through 11 of this psalm of psalm 80 when he says you brought us brought a vine out of egypt you drove out the nations and planted it you cleared the ground for it it took deep root and filled the land the mountains were covered with shade the mighty cedars with its branches it sent out its branches to the sea and shoots to the river now what these verses tell the story of the exodus in three phases Israel was uprooted from the hard soil of affliction where it was not able to bloom. The nation was then planted by the power of God in a choice land with the idolatrous occupants destroyed and removed. It then prospered there, reaching dimensions during the reign of Solomon that fulfilled God's promise for the nation to extend from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River in Deuteronomy 11.24 and 1 Kings 4.21. Now, Israel's story did not move forward fruitfully. No sooner had Solomon died than the nation split into two halves, with the northern kingdom abandoning its heritage of faith. The impact on the vine of Israel was tragic, as told by Isaiah in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 5, which says he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yield wild grapes. So God said, I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. Now, this is the very situation that Psalm 80 laments in verses 12 through 13, when it says, Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruits? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all who move in the field feed on it. Now, this picture of destruction may be in response to the final overthrow of the northern kingdom when the Assyrians conquered Samaria in 722 BC, although it could equally speak of the disastrous years that preceded this end. Of course, the psalmist knew why all this had happened. God had judged his people for their infidelity and worshiping false gods. His argument was that God had invested so much saving effort in his people that he should not allow his beloved vine to ultimately be despoiled. Christians in need of God's grace for repentance should plead on similar grounds. I am sure of this, Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In light of this, Christians can and should respond to threats to their faith by praying for God to keep his own investment in our salvation. You know, throughout the book of Hebrews, for example, we, we see these threats. And, and many people, they get very concerned. They, they even take these, these threats to mean that, that God is saying, if you don't do this, then you won't be saved. But, but we need to clarify this very clearly. The book of Hebrews is written to a suffering church. They are facing persecution. 
And and what the, the writer of Hebrews is doing, we don't know who he is, by the way, although people speculate and they make guesses, but the text, the book of Hebrews never tells us. But the point is, is that the, the book of Hebrews is written to these suffering brothers and sisters in the faith. And this pastor who is writing to them is very concerned that they stand fast in the grace of God. And so the point of Hebrews is a sufficiency of Christ in and over all things. And so he gives them warnings to remind them that they are to hold fast in the midst of their persecution and in the midst of their suffering. Now, why do we say this? Because a passage like Romans 8, 31 through 39, it makes clear that we are held fast, as John Piper once said, down to the nanosecond. And this is true of us. Christ's hold is so sure, and it is so grounded in the person and work of Christ, that Paul says some five or six times in Romans 8, 31 through 39, it's because of Christ, it's because of Christ, it's because of Christ. It's all because of Christ. Christ is sufficient. And yet what God does in giving us these warnings in the book of Hebrews is he's trying to woo us. He's trying to get us in a 2 Corinthians 13.5 way to examine ourselves in light of Christ, in light of the work of grace that God has done in bringing us through the door of salvation. He is the door, as John 10 says, and, and bringing us into the family of God. He has transferred us, as Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Jonah 2, 9, salvation is of the Lord. See, this is all of God. And yet what God calls us to do in a text like Philippians 1, 6, when he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, He's saying that it is God's work ultimately in us that even gives us the ability by the grace of God that that has led us into the family of God. God is even giving us the opportunity to continue to grow and, and to work this out because he's doing a good work in us. And see, even the good work that 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 Paul is talking about here, it, it begins and it finds its source. Not in ourselves, but in God. And this means that our it doesn't matter our performance for God, how many people we're reaching, on all of those things, they all pale in comparison to the glory of knowing our Savior. And so we ought to treasure Christ above all. And when, so when Scripture gives us warnings, we should not say, you know what, God is really, I, I was right, God is really disinterested in me. Instead, we should see it as God is so interested in me that he is giving me a warning saying that this is a warning, like a blinking red light. If if I cross this barrier, I'm displeasing, I'm dishonoring God. And when we cross that barrier, guess what happens? We just, Our fellowship with God is disrupted. But that doesn't mean that our security is ever impacted. There's a difference. If I, if I cross that red line, there's going to be consequences. If, if, I, if, I, if I go at a, at, a, at a blinking red light and I'm driving down the, 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 the way on the road, guess what? There could be somebody else coming and I'm going to get in an accident. Is that accident God's fault? Some people say yes. But the, the problem is, is I made a decision 
to go and, and not to stop at that, that blinking red light or at, at a stop sign or at a red light. That, that onus of responsibility is on me. That the cop is going to give me a, a ticket, a moving violation, if I don't stop at a, at a, at a, red, a stop sign or, or, or anything like that. And the responsibility to for anything that happens, it's going to fall on me. But too many Christians, they don't take any responsibility for their, for their salvation. They don't do what Romans 6.11 says. They don't consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God. And so they live however they want to live. And even Paul would say, no. He says that in Romans 6.1. May it never be. We don't get to live how we want to live. We don't get to do what we want to to do. These these threats are there to remind us of the costly nature of grace that has saved us. And this same grace is even wooing us, drawing us to repentance. Even even a passage like, like God's discipline, God's disciplining those whom he loves, he does it because he loves us, it says. Not because he wants to come down and to strike us dead with a lightning bolt, like our God was the God of Zeus or something like that. Instead, what God does is he's using the means under his providence to bring us back, using the, the situations of our lives. And, and even in Genesis 50, 20, what we see is that God even, God even is so sovereign over history that he can turn around what was meant for evil and use it for his good. That, that's how powerful our God is. And that's how amazing and, and good and glorious our God is. And that should lead us to repentance as well. Well, our next point that we're going to see in our text today is God's hand on the Son of Man. And the final stanza of this Psalm 80, it begins with a renewal appeal for salvation. And it concludes with the final version of the Psalm's refrain. And in between, the Psalmist provides one more potent argument that comes from the redeeming promises of the Word of God. Now, the appeal calls for the Lord as the God of hosts to look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted in Psalm 80, 14 through 15. Asaph's boldness, it reflects a knowledge of God's compassionate grace and is reflected in his imperatives. Turn, look, see, have regard. And in light of the greater revelation of God's grace through Jesus Christ, Christians should have at least this much boldness when we pray. All Palmer Robinson writes, Considering the sacrifice Jesus has made to clear the way, a timid approach would dishonor the effectiveness of his work. Asaph's plea is simple but direct in verse 16 of Psalm 80, when he says, They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. You see, God is able to overturn even these historic calamities, and the psalmist pleads that, that this would be done. Well, this psalm has already proved to be one of the most theologically elevated poems in the whole Bible. In verses 15 and 17, however, pleas are made that raise it to an even higher pitch than what we've considered already. In verses 15, the psalmist prays that God will have regard for the son whom you made strong for yourself. And in verse 17, he says, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. The question is to whom he refers with these striking appeals. 
One option is that the psalmist has the king of Israel in mind since God established this northern line of royalty and appointed them for leadership of the broken off portions of the nation. The main argument in favor of this view is that the psalm seems to indicate a specific individual and there is none more suitable than the vitally important king whose faith or unbelief would determine the fate of the northern tribes. The king is the man of your right hand in that God established him in authority. And in such a position, he is viewed as the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Now, the reliable scholar H.C. Leipold takes this, takes this passage this way, saying, There seems to be no other feasible way of interpreting verse 17 than to think of it as being a prayer for the king that sits upon the throne of Israel, he says. And since verse 80 calls repeatedly for grace to repent, this view sees the psalmist as praying for God to turn the ungodly northern king back to himself in faith. While a second view understands the psalmist to refer to the entirety of the nation, which has already been described as the vine of God's planting. In Psalm 80:15, he refers to the stock that your right hand planted, which means the people and the son whom you made strong for yourself. The final clause is seen as introducing not a new person, but another way of thinking about Israel. Exodus 4.22 described Israel as God's firstborn son, and Hosea 11.1, written during the likely period of the psalm, says that God loved Israel and called it my son. John Calvin takes this view, seeing Israel and, in our time, the Christian church, as the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself, as Psalm 80.17 says. And so Calvin writes, By the Son of Man is to be understood the people whom God adopted to himself, they might be as one man. And so most Christian expositors view Psalm 80 as looking forward to the Messiah who is promised and would be the true deliverer of his sin-afflicted people. And in this view, this was the view of the Jewish rabbis in the centuries leading up to Christ. Charles Spurgeon summarized, There is no doubt here an outlook to the Messiah, for whom believing Jews had learned to look as a Savior in time of troubles. And Spurgeon is right for a number of reasons. Verse 15 associates the son with the stock of your right hand had planted, and this parallels the teaching of Isaiah that the Messiah would be the branch from the stump of Jesse, whose roots shall bear fruit in Isaiah 11, 1. David Dixon writes, there was the branch to come of the stock of Israel, for whose cause the nation of the Israelites could, could not be utterly forsaken and destroyed. And this was the Messiah Christ Jesus, of whose coming, because God had a special care, that the stock would be made strong till this branch came forth, that the church of Israel might be confident not to be utterly cast off. In fact, the expression, man of your right hand, in verse 17, it does not fit any of the northern kings, all of whom turned away from the Lord, except in the most general sense of God's having appointed them. Only the promised Messiah would stand at God's right hand, both in the sense of his equality as God and in the sense of his appointment as a true king. And finally, while the Son of Man can be used in a general sense, it often has a special sense in the Old Testament of describing the coming Savior in Daniel 7.13. And so for Asaph to speak of the Son of Man whom you have made strong for yourself in verse 17, it seems to clearly point to the unique Messiah whose coming would, could truly save the people of God. And to the extent that the psalm refers to the temporal king of Israel, this was partially true as a representative of the coming Messiah to whom God's people truly can point with the certainty of salvation. 
So Psalm 80, it concludes with an appeal for God to send the promised Messiah and to strengthen him for this appointed work so as people may receive in him their promised salvation. This is precisely the way that Mary understood the, the coming birth of her son, Jesus Christ, when she's saying in Luke 1, 46-55, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so having foreseen God's hand on the coming Messiah, this psalm concludes with a return to its main theme. God's grace to empower the repentance of his people. In Psalm 80, 18, it says, Then we shall not turn back from you, Asa's praise, adding, Give us life that we may call upon your name. So the gift of a new regenerate nature that, that will not turn away from faith in God is associated with the promised new covenant in Christ in Jeremiah uh, 31, 33 and Hebrews 8, 10. This is what sinners ultimately need. New life from God to turn to him and remain in faith. Only Jesus Christ can provide this saving gift. And he offers this very life to those who repent and believe, as he says in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And so this plea for saving life, it leads to a final version of the Psalms refrain in Psalm 80, 19, which says, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. What is added this time is the covenant name of the Lord Yahweh, as it appears in the name God of hosts. And so Asaph is asking for the covenant salvation in which there is alone is help, a salvation that finds fulfillment in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Asaph's plea was not in vain, for the Lord of the covenant would fulfill all of his promises and the coming of his Son, who has come in the person and work of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself gave the answer to Asaph's plea when he instituted the Lord's Supper, saying this in Matthew 26, 28, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so in this light, Psalm 80 is not only one of the most theologically rich psalms, but is also among the most redemptively astute. Israel's problem was not the Assyrian conquerors, but her sin that caused God's wrath to fall. The people's need, which only God could grant, was grace to turn and renewed faith to the Lord of salvation. This grace is what Benjamin Morgan Palmer's friend discovered. He was frustrated that the preacher had taught from God's word, not only that the sinner is not able to turn to God, but also that he must perish unless he does. And when he quarreled about this seemingly contradiction, the preacher challenged him not to argue, but to go ahead and to turn his heart to the Savior. The man answered in anguish, I have been trying my best for three whole days and cannot. And at this, Palmer said, Ah, that puts a different face upon it. We will go then and tell the difficulty straight to God. And so the two men prayed in a simple, matter-of-fact way for God to answer the sinner's desperate problem by sending the grace of his Spirit to open his heart in the name of Jesus Christ. And having prayed this way, Palmer left the man alone before God. He later read, I left my friend in his powerlessness in the hands of God as the only helper. In a short time, he came through the struggle, rejoicing in the hope of eternal life. And so in a similar way, Psalm 80 concludes with an appeal for the coming of Christ that was answered by God in his time. In good time, your prayer for God to save you will likewise be answered in the grace of God. For the New Testament declares in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. 
Oh, Lord, what a psalm that we've looked at today in this Psalm 80, that you are mighty to save. You are mighty to hold us fast. And even in the midst of our failure and our sin and our stubborn rebellion, our idolatry, you you are in your providence at work. Lord, help us to do as Proverbs 4.23, as your people says, as your word says, to, to guard our hearts with all due diligence and, and to heed the warning of 1 John 5.21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So Lord, I, I pray today for my brothers and sisters that we would take a good hard look as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says and examine our lives in light of what we've heard from Psalm 80 today. And, and Lord, if there is a, any wicked way that the, in us as there no doubt is, that displeases you, that dishonors you. If we, if we have sinned against you with our words, with our thoughts, or in our hearts, which we all have, then Lord, may you forgive us under your searching, gazing hand. And may we cast ourselves afresh on the perfect righteousness of Christ, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's not our righteousness, it's your righteousness. It's your righteousness that we need. And so you sent forth your son, born of a virgin, born under the sentence of death, to pay the penalty that we justly deserve, to be buried and to rise again. Lord, what, what grace is there in Jesus? You have done it all. You have signed and sealed our salvation in your blood. You forgive us of all of our iniquity, and you have removed it as far as the east is to the west. What, what great news, what glad tidings of great joy you have given to us. Help us, Lord, to take these truths home, to preach it to our hearts, and to preach it to others, that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.